Hi, Eric. Aaron, how are you? Good. Um, Happy inauguration day. Yes. That's kind of where I want to start. I don't, like usual, we haven't coordinated what parts of these chapters right. there we are each no want streams, to talk about. There are no mirrors. This is really <laughs> us falling into space and hurting our chins at the edge of the stage. That's right. <laughs> um, this, this, the thing that I got most, uh, did you listen to Biden's inauguration speech? I did. I actually thought I was listening to it once, but wasn't really paying attention. So then when it was all over, I went and played it at 1.5 speed, which forced me to pay better attention. Uh, and I actually listened the second time. Yes, and if you're listening to us at 1.5 speed, here's a little thing that might think to make you actually going too much fast. And now I'm really screwing your head over. You're a terrible person. <laughs> um, unity was the message I got from his speech. I think and that's a reasonable theme to pull. I don't know what to make of that. Okay. I thought it was really good. But this just goes kind of back to a recurring theme that we've seen over this season, which is, you know, maybe two reoccurring themes for this season. One is how has the church changed throughout its history? But this other theme of how do we handle and end division within our own ranks and within the country? And how do we deal with it? Well, this evening, Senator Rand Paul said on television that he, he said, if you read between the lines of Biden's speech, he's attacking us as ne'er-do-wells and white supremacists. Um, and I will agree that Biden said that we need unity in order to overcome things such as white supremacy. But if you're going to assume that the people Biden is against is you, even when he's specifically saying he's talking about, you know, Nazis. <laughs> then um, why, why do you want to be against, like, it's, one thing we're going to notice is that there are, like, personality-wise, some people are much more interested in holding people together, and other people are much more interested in chopping off the rough, rough edges because they're problematic. Okay, this is what he said. He quoted Abraham Lincoln, and he said, when he put pen to paper, the, the President Lincoln said, if my name ever goes down into history, it will be for this act and my whole soul is in it, right? The Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, so this is the phrase that Biden caught on to, my whole soul is in it, right? And so he says, today on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing people together, uniting our people and uniting our nation, right? With unity, we can do great things. Something pundits have been fond of saying the last couple of weeks is that no president has come to office with such a volume of crises going full bore all at once. Um, that's not something you can do. Those, those aren't problems you can solve on your own. You really do need people to come together. Uh, later on in his speech, he said this, every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. And he said, politics need not be a raging fire, destroying everything in its past, in its path. It's um, nice it is a nice thought. It's when I read Twitter, <laughs> which I am want to do and which I quite enjoy, I see people criticizing calls for unity from the Democratic Party. Right? Yeah, it's a sign of not going to get anything done. Mm -hmm. There's, um, and so I think that this is a nuanced topic and it's worth trying to figure out because there's compromise, there's unity, there's disagreement, and then there's stone. I mean, we see. I, I, the reason why I'm so incoherent right now is because I don't know how to talk about this subject correctly, right? <laughs> it's it's a little tricky. It, it's um, it's a lot easier to talk about things that don't feel quite so personally directed. Rereading chapter three of David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism this evening, I felt a little called to repentance. Um, 
he he really didn't want to push people out. And I, when the church uh, released a statement, you know, against violence after the Capitol attack, I kind of wish they'd named some names, right? And like said, these specific philosophies are problematic and fundamentally a Christian. Um, and I, I still think that's helpful, right? Some things are bad. Like there's nothing good about QAnon that needs to be respected, right? It is not light. It is not truth. Um, but how do you um, come out against lies and dishonesty without um, accidentally damaging the people who are at least somewhat innocently caught up in that. Um, ultimately, we're about people. We're not about, you know. Yeah, it's it. I, I felt I felt a little humbled reading some of President McKay's words. Me too. The name of the chapter. So we're essentially we said that we were going to do chapters two and three, but chapter two is a short chapter. It's powerful. It's about revelation and prophecy. It's lovely. Go read about magic and miracles in David O. McKay's life. It's outstanding. But I agree with you completely. The meat of today is chapter three, free agency and tolerance. And it's going to hit on some themes we've heard before. Like uh, this defined a lot of David O. McKay's uh, political philosophy, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Um, later on, if we do the education chapter, it's going to come up again. Um, this question of agency and letting people make their own decisions and loving them regardless is a core guiding principle in David O. McKay's life and ministry. So what we're going to find is that this chapter and this speech about unity, they align in a way that I was astonished. <laughs> because there's i'm pretty ticked off at lots of stuff that's been happening over the last couple of weeks here in the good old united states of america uh, it's been you. an upsetting couple of weeks it has been and um so it's hard for me to want to talk about unity and tolerance right when i'm feeling a bit intolerant <laughs> yes, um, it's much easier to talk about other people's sins than one's own. Mm -hmm. And, right, there's a great meme that floats around the majority of the forage, right? Where he's. About, um, I'm sorry, you, you went fuzzy on my end. Jordy LaForge. Oh, 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 that's the guy LeVar Burton played, right? That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm not deep into my Star Trek, but I have uh, just <laughs> successfully identified a bit of trivia that came up in casual conversation. Yep. Speaking of, I, did you see the Space Force flag today? No. Where was it? It seemed heavily Trek influenced, I must say. Oh, I have seen the pattern for it. It is definitely okay. a USS, you know, what is it? You, uh, the a Federation logo. Yeah. It is cribbed. But anyway, yeah. it's Jordy. The meme is Jordy is like, you know, got his hand up, you know. Oh, yes. And rejecting, then points, rejecting and then points, right? So he rejects yeah. the phrase unity. Like, I don't want that. And he points at it. Instead, he goes, hmm, let's talk about consequences. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, one of the things that really made me livid um the day of the capital storming um was the captain moroni dude you see this guy oh yeah there was and, a guy who was at the capitol one of the insurrectionists and he had moroni's uh banner yes he was doing some roman centurion cosplay and holding the title of liberty and i started to listen to an interview he did with somebody and i couldn't get through it because um I wanted to scream, mm -hmm. but it just seems such a fundamental, poor, awful reading of scripture. Like, mm -hmm. um, and this is me perhaps being intolerant, but the idea that a legitimately elected president is the keen man and the legitimately de-elected president 
is are the you know the holies it, it just it didn't match right like the he story the story in alma and this and this guy's understanding of it fundamentally didn't match and part of it is that he'd get sucked he got sucked into this lie of voter fraud and all this other nonsense that you know just no evidence for no matter how much you say it it's not real um so part of it is that he was has bad sources and he was lied to but his fundamental misunderstanding of the story it seemed to me was very very upsetting and it's one of the reasons i really wanted a stronger statement from the church um even though they said all the right things they said it in sort of a generic way that lets anybody on the it was all stolen side to believe that the church was supporting them and we've talked about this issue before um when there was some white supremacy earlier in trump's reign of terror um that the church said be nice to everyone and white supremacists took that as a as the church being on their side and I don't want to talk about all that again, but this is a really difficult question, right? Like ultimately, um, God does not tolerate sin. And obviously, Aaron, I think it goes without saying that I am not a sinner. Therefore, the people I disagree with are sinners. Um, <laughs> obviously, who could possibly disagree with that? And this is a really difficult problem. Um, in seminary, we've been talking this week about the translation of the Book of Mormon and the failures of Martin Harris and some of these moments in church history. And it's, it's really compelling in sections three and five in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section three is largely about Lord giving Joseph Smith another chance. Section five is largely about the Lord giving Martin Harris another chance. Um, the Lord, as the phrase in Isaiah has it, like his hand, hand is stretched out still. Like he's constantly forgiving us. And I, I believe that we should do that also but how do we keep our hands out to the individuals while um, very forcefully rejecting wicked ideas and philosophies that could corrupt and destroy? I just don't know. Let's see how President McKay did it. Because All right, let's do it. I, because I don't know how. Let's start with a quote. Let's talk about the wheat and the tares. We'll start there, shall we? All right, classic story. Free agency and tolerance. A year after becoming president, he wrote in one of the church magazines about the parable of the tares. A man went out and sowed his seed and expected a good harvest. But at night, an enemy came and sowed weed, weeds, <laughs> sowed weed, <laughs> and sowed weeds or tares right in the middle of the corn. So that when the crops grew, there were the tares and weeds right with the corn. The application here is wonderful. Again, this is McKay speaking. I should like to give it to the whole church. There are tares in the church. Indifferent, not sinful people who deal unjustly and unrighteously with their neighbors. It is folly to say to the president of the church or to say to the presidency or superintendency of any of the auxiliary organizations, you remove that man or you remove that woman or else I will stop coming to church. The Savior said, no, do not pull up the tares or you will destroy the wheat. Let them grow together. And in the time of harvest, bind your tares to be burned and harvest your good crop. Oh, what a beautiful message. President McKay disagreed with lots of people. But as an intellectual, Right? As somebody of education who praised the phrase, the glory of God is intelligence. And as a strong believer in free agency, right? He believed in letting people be, right? And being tolerant of people's opinions. And so what this chapter does is it goes through and shows specific examples of President McKay doing this in, in ways that are surprising, even going to the point of defending people who others wanted to attack within the church. The, the best example and the phrase that really just strikes me as a kind of haunting and lovely and tearful is the phrase, leave her alone. Ah, uh, is that from the H.B. or the Hubie Brown um, 
story. So one about. Oh no, that's the one about Joanna Brooks. That's the one about, or yeah, not Joanna Brooks. Brooks. Sorry, uh, Juanita. Uh, Juanita. Juanita. <laughs> Joanna, Brooks. if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Juanita Brooks wrote a biography, uh, a detailed historical narrative account about a particularly dark chapter in the church's history, which I don't even really want to go into. It's not, a, it's so nasty. I reread the Wikipedia page on it this evening, right? And I couldn't hardly, hardly take it. <laughs> well, I think um, we have to it name was... it though, or else people will be terrified. That's <sighs> what we might, oh my gosh. As I look at my clock right now, it is 9-11, which is the date actually of the Mountain Meadows ma massacre. Was it really? Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. It was the worst 9-11 for a long time, but um it was an ugly, ugly incident, and uh, not really the point of our discussion tonight, but she wrote no. a very well-researched and still highly regarded um, book-length um, history of the event, which had largely been successfully covered up, at least within the membership of the church. Yeah. The event is not great, and the event isn't what's important, as you say. What's important is that the author of this book this was in the 50s, if I remember the dates right here. I think that's correct. Was essentially being censured by other folks in the leadership of the church. Well, we have a lot of examples of this. Um, we've talked in the past about how um, Maureen Whipple, when she wrote The Giant Joshua, which is a novel, but about a polygamy, um, was looked down upon on the church. In fact, David O'McKay's wife was one of the people who thought she was horrible for writing the book. Um, it was it was a time of cultural shifting in the church. Um, our friend, well, he doesn't know we're his friend, but Ben Park <laughs> um, gave a dialogue fireside on Sunday. Um, by the way, speaking of dialogue, correct me if mm. I'm wrong, Aaron, but I believe we are a proud member of the uh, Dialogue Podcast Network. Does that sound correct yes. to you? There, we sure are. And there are lots of great shows in the network. Yes. And, and by lots, I mean not very many. <laughs> but there's a few. So go check them out. Uh, and, and Benjamin <laughs> Park's recent fireside is uh, an episode in one of these. And his the, the story, it's called, um, it's called Mormonism's Many Modernisms. And um, it, he specifically spoke about Amy Brown Lyman, who ha was at one point a general president of the Louis Society, and Franklin Harris, who was president of BYU and how um, their work in the church was pushing us as a faith in a direction of like social justice and, um, and what we might call today like a liberal faith um, tradition. Like that's kind of where they were pushing us. And then um, when uh, J. Reuben Clark, who's appeared on the show before, um, became kind of came out of nowhere uh he had been more or less inactive for more than two decades and suddenly became a member of the first presidency and his uh his very strict um party line conservative republicanism um really set him at odds with some of those people and and, and anyway uh dr park's fireside is about how the church sort of had a crossroads there between coming as a social justice oriented liberal faith and a J. Reuben Clark leading to Ezra Taft Benson and Joseph Fielding Smith's sort of um, super conservative faith. And um, the point, of course, was that nothing is ever set in stone, right? The, the church is a living organism and it's always growing and changing. And, and there are different um, ways of like living the faith. And some people will always be more tolerant of other people. And I'm not, this is not a conservative liberal thing. There are people on either side of that imaginary line. Um, which feel more or less tolerant towards people on the other side of that imaginary line. Um, but that's what we're talking about, right? Like the David O. McKay's time as an apostle and as president of the church are times of a lot of flux in American culture and therefore in church culture also. And, um, and so they're going to get, they're going to be people caught in the crossfires. And Juanita Brooks is one of these people. She is um, a historian 
She has uh, a real loyalty to truth and to fact and to accuracy and believes that being honest about what really happened is always a good policy. And there are members in the church leadership who fundamentally disagree with that. And there are many people like her and there are many people like them. And this is something that's being shaken out. And I, I have to think that even though um, as people look back at the last 50, 60 years of American Mormon history, tend to think of us as a very rigidly conservative organization. We're very fortunate that President McKay was in charge during this time, or um, a lot of tolerance that is actually in the faith might have been burned out. In the case of Juanita Brooks, there were people specifically trying to get her out of the church, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she was trying to add a specific paragraph to her book and um, about one of the uh, participants in the historic event. And she was warned by the Council of the Twelve that if she did that, you know, that some things could be some bad, you know, that, um, well, it's a complicated story, but essentially that there could be some action taken, right, to rescind uh, a specific set of blessings. Yes, people I, I don't were trying know if we to can her around a little bit. Yeah. To keep her from telling the truth as she understood it. Yeah. And McKay said, leave her alone. And they did. Mm -hmm. And that just when she learned about this years later, right? It just, you know, it was just an emotional moment. This is tolerance, right? For This is letting the wheat grow with the tares. It is, here is somebody that has a differing opinion about, about how to proceed. And let's go ahead and just live together, right? Yes. Um, this is not me quoting President McKay, but I'm realizing as you're talking that um, tolerance is, is the very lowest level of charity, right? It's the basic step. You start by just letting people alone. And then if you're like President McKay, you can learn to love them as well, right? Like, like President McKay was very good at loving people, even people who he had fundamental differences with. There's this one example of a fellow named Sterling McMurrin, right? Yes. Who was this Still a great university hero of... in, in many Mormon circles. Okay. So I don't actually know much about him. Um, but, you know, he's a pretty liberal guy from what I understand, just by reading his Wikipedia article. Um, Let me read you a quotation from him. So this is yeah. from the book Matters of Conscience, um, which is conversations and interviews between Sterling McMurrin and a fellow named L. Jackson Newell. Um, we, we can link to this. The whole book is online on the Signature Books website. But let me, let me read you something he said about the church. And I think you'll agree that most people in uh, my experience, especially outside the Berkeley Ward, would find this a difficult thing to hear someone say. Um, he said, I do love the Mormon church. People sometimes find that hard to believe. Here I am, a person who doesn't fully approve of much the church does. He was very um, open about the, how awful the priesthood ban was, for instance. This is kind of what he most often got under general authority skin by, by talking about. They wish he would not talk about the priesthood ban because they knew it wasn't good, but they didn't want people bringing it up. By the priesthood ban, you're referring to um, black people not being able to hold the priesthood until 1978. That's correct. Uh, okay. Sterling McMurrin thought that was horrible. And I think we agree. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and the church, the church agrees. Like that's, that's official doctrine. That, that was a horrible thing. <laughs> anyway, and, and I strongly disapprove of some things. And, so, and I am someone who thinks that a fair number of its fundamental teachings are sheer nonsense. It's hard for them to believe that I can have goodwill toward the church, but I do. My ancestors chose the church. I was born in it and reared in it. It's just part of my makeup. I don't think of churches as being true or false. Churches are good or bad or better or worse, but not true or false. 
Being a Mormon is simply part of being a family, and even the stray sheep in the family can love it and defend it. While I readily confess to being a heretic, one who doesn't believe, I frankly resent being called an apostate, one who turns against the church. I am critical of the church, but I'm for it, not against it. Yeah, that's great. Um, in fact, he was this criticality, right? Again, people wanted to kick him out. <laughs> his 1950s, his unorthodox religious beliefs raised the ire of two senior apostles, Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee, who moved to have him excommunicated, right? Yeah. And so David O. McKay said, okay, now hold on. I'm going, let's, I want to have a meeting with him. And during this meeting with um, Sterling McMurrin, he got to know him, right? Talked about him and just, you know, came to love this guy and came back to these other two um, apostles and said, if you want to do this, do this action, this excommunication, then I will be the first witness, you know, defending him. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, it didn't go through. Nothing, nothing happened. And they came to really appreciate each other and had a long history of letters and meetings and conversation. And it was, it was tender. And even when they did really disagree, like you say, um, he did not believe McMurray and like he was, he loved the church and he liked being part of it and he wanted it to be the best version of itself, but he was not precisely a man of faith. Um, tolerance. Okay. This is somebody who he just didn't agree with. Let's give some more examples. These, this, they, I mean, I'm going to just briefly mention what arguably could be talked about as the big two okay. in this, which are the, ele the evolution debate and Mormon doctrine, right? Well, let's not get too deep into the evolution debate because for two reasons. One, we've talked about it a lot before. And also when we get to the BYU chapter, it's going to come up a lot. So, but yes, okay. <laughs> bring it up. But let, we, I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, specifically that uh, Joseph Fielding Smith um, published this book called um, Man, His Origin and Destiny. And it is available on DeseretBook.com. Even today. <laughs> and it has one review. And I'm going to read for you with the five-star five, five review. Five stars, all right. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> this book is brilliant. It completely shatters the false theory of organic evolution and explains the literal reality of the book of Genesis from the creation to the global flood of Noah. He tackles all these topics from the physical, historical and scriptural points of view. Everyone should read this <laughs> here on face and hat. We would say you should not read it unless you just want to read interesting books of a historical. I think Gary, you're just afraid that church. you will read it and then have to quit your job. <laughs> That's what I think. But in the name of tolerance, <laughs> this is an opinion that you are, are allowed to hold that I personally don't have. Yeah. I believe in evolution. And it turns out, so did McKay, although he didn't really admit this very publicly. There is some evidence that he was a believer. And so this book made him sad from what we can tell. Can I ask you a question? I yeah. just had a thought. Like, this is some. This is another recurring theme in the life of President McKay. Is when there is something um, really controversial, he will often keep his opinion as far out of the limelight as possible, even if it leads people he disagrees with to um, sort of carry the conversation and be the loudest voice in the room. And I suspect this is related to his desire to tolerate all ideas and people's agency and all people because he doesn't want anyone to feel like, oh, I disagree with the prophet, therefore I don't belong here. Um, is that an important part of tolerance? To be- This interest, to be quiet? To be quiet and sort of, you know, off white in color and inoffensive and not have an opinion that's public. This is what's really hard. And this is what's really hard about making a podcast and putting my opinion 
on the internet. I don't know if you feel the same way. Oh, you were because hoping to be I find apostle? it very scary. Huh? You were hoping no. to be apostle. You think <laughs> I just find it. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it scary to talk about um, topics in the church that are controversial because I want to be tolerant and I don't like making other people mad. Yeah. <laughs> so President McKay acted in these five situations, okay? The evolution debate, Mormon doctrine, which we've already discussed, Juanita Brooks, Sterling McMurrin, and another one which we're going to end on, which is fun, McKay Brody, we'll talk about that. These are places where he acted where he took his tolerance, but he still made sure that his disagreement was, was known, but like he moved subtly, right? Mm -hmm. And because he moved subtly, the consequence was that sometimes it looked like tacit agreement. So in the, in the case of the evolution debate, right? He, said, this book does not represent the official doctrine of the church, right? And he said, the, books are, the book is of the author, who is very clear about this. This is the action that he took, mm -hmm. right? But a lot of people just said, well, it hasn't been explicitly denied either. I'm just going to treat it as gospel mm -hmm. because it was written by an apostle, right? Yep. And so... Yes, it was more tolerant to do it this way. As you say, if he had come out, and he even, he even says this, that if he came out publicly against evolution, right, that there would be people that would be react, reject, reject that, would be, you know, is this now a church for me, mm -hmm. right? If I remember that part of the book correctly. And so he was tolerant. But because of that tolerance, some people kept this incorrect idea. And we see these five-star reviews <laughs> on desertbook.com for the book. So your question was, should we be quiet? Yes, is this a role, is this something we should emulate? I don't know, man. Listen, I really love the people in my life that I know. Right. I feel this desire to be tolerant. I really do. Lots of the people that I that I interact with. Um, you know, ha have ideas on policy and <laughs> politics that I don't. And I really want to be tolerant. The I guess the line is, when does tolerant become harmful? Right. So believing in a strict creationist interpretation of the Bible, well, it won't keep you out of heaven. Right. It might keep and you from will... uh, making your own planets, Aaron. But uh, that's, that's <laughs> I'm assuming episode. that <laughs> I'm assuming that all truth will be known, let yeah. made known eventually to people that move into the afterlife. But it won't keep you out of heaven and it won't keep you from being a good neighbor. Right? Sure. So where does it become harmful? Where is the line? And at what point do we have to intervene? It's a good question, right? Because um, I think you're right. Um, if I don't believe in Australopithecus or something, I don't know that that causes damage to anyone. Um, but if my disbelief in science leads me eventually to reject vaccination or wearing a mask during a pandemic. Um, at that point, I am hurting other people. And that's a pretty serious problem. Like, it, I mean, as I read, we haven't done this chapter yet, but as I read about um, the debate among general authorities um, about the priesthood ban, um, it seems pretty clear to me that this is kind of the problem here, right? Like trying to be tolerant of some people's racism is what kept the ban in place so long. And that is actively hurting other people. Um, and I would- Can you argue, just say that, say that again? Yes, yeah, so 
trying not to so in order to get rid of the ban you would have to um tell some people you know what maybe you're racist and a bad person in some respect by believing that a an entire class of people based entirely on a couple of genes that their family carries and that the continent their ancestors came from are not fully welcome in the household of god um you're believing that I don't want to offend you by saying you're wrong. And so we're going to continue to keep these people from the household of God. Um, at that point, tolerating one group of people is directly damaging another group of people. And that I think um, that is certainly crossed that line of where tolerance becomes harmful. But this just comes to the question, right? How do, I mean, the answer is <laughs> in politics is you convince enough people that you're right and then you vote in new changes. As long right? as people That's, believe that the voting machines are not run by Hugo Chavez's ghost. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the amp answer. Spirited debate and in a loving way, right? Well, I think that's the key. And... I think the key has to be love. Um, and in and, and religion, that's certainly true. Um, I recently saw a tweet, and by recently, I mean like a year or two ago. So I, I will not be able to pull it up easily. Um, but somebody was commenting that if you look at the history of science, we want to believe that science is all about the better ideas rising to the surface and truth winning out. But historically, you look at it and you kind of have to wait for the last generation of scientists to die before the new paradigm can take over. Um, and that is a really kind of depressing thing to say about science. And it's kind of depressing to say the same thing might be true about a Christian religion. Um, but I, you know, the cynic in me says, yeah, absolutely. For great change to happen, you always have to have the last generation die before the new generation can improve the world. And that's, I mean, one of our themes on this show is the world gets better with time, but what if what we're really saying is we need, we just need generations to keep dying so that the world can get better. That's the negative way of stating our, our optimistic view on reality, Aaron. Mm -hmm. It is true though. I mean, I, I can see a huge difference in the way that my generation thinks about the church and the way the generation that is being raised right now thinks about. Do you agree with that assessment? I do, but we do live in Berkeley, so it's possible that our view is skewed in some way, but I don't think so. I don't think so. And of course, there's a big difference between my generation and older generations. Um, and there is, of course, biblical precedent, you know, the whole all the all the tribe of Israel had to die up before they could enter into the promised land. Yeah. Luckily, life expectancy was shorter back then, or they might have had to stay, spend eighty-five years in the wilderness. So, there is hope. It is possible to change your mind, right on su on a subject. Yeah, and um, individuals do change, right? Like one of my favorite stories. It's not actually a President McKay story, but in the chapter was. Hubie Brown telling the story of when he was a counselor in a bishopric and the two counselors wanted to excommunicate this woman. And the bishop said, well, I'm really glad God is an old man and we're not excommunicating her. And she went on to have a very powerful and faithful life. And, um, and president McKay comes into the story when he tells elder Brown or president Brown, that that was a very important lesson to learn. It is interesting how much excommunication comes up in this chapter, right? In fact, one, two, three. Yeah, out of the eight examples that are given here, given here, right? It's like five of them have to deal with excommunication, right? In yeah. terms of tolerance and about someone talking somebody else around, usually McKay talking somebody else around um, to not do it, mm -hmm. right? To not take some kind of church action. It saddens me to look at the, history of the church and see intellectuals, you know, scientists, historians, 
essentially intolerance directed toward them, right? To the point that they were removed from the church. The final example here is Fawn McKay Brody. Okay. And this, she was excommunicated before um, David O. McKay could really, um, didn't, he didn't have a hand in it. Well, there's all, no evidence right? that he did. We don't know for sure. Yeah. Uh, there's no evidence that he was involved in her excommunication in any way. It happened back east. He didn't like her book, though. Yeah. Her book was called No Man Knows My History. It's and another book that's still in it, print. Another book that's still in print. And um, Marvin Hill in 1971, this is from the Wikipedia page, said about this book that there is strong evidence that her book has had a strong negative impact on popular Mormon thought, since to this day in certain circles in Utah, to a knowledge that one has read Von Brody is to create doubts as to one's loyalty to the church. Right? Just to have read Von Brody. The book was about Joseph Smith, and it was a biographer, a essentially a non-believer style biography of Joseph Smith, and it was not well received in the church, but it was critically acclaimed outside the church in terms of its scholarship. It says here that it was um, the first non-holographic biography, meaning like non-apologetic Oh, I just biography. learned how to say that correctly. Hands okay, up, I've been saying it. it wrong all my life. And by all my life, uh -huh. I mean since I learned the word, which is uh, certainly not in the first half of my life. Um, <laughs> but it's, it has a hard G. It's hagiographic, apparently. Oh, no way. Okay. Yeah. So the the first important non-hagiographic biography of Joseph Smith, right? It's still in print. You know, she discovered a bunch of primary sources. She presented Joseph Smith as a good-natured, lazy, extroverted, and unsuccessful treasure seeker, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, talked about polygamy, if Joseph Smith's life, and really just you know, in, you know, essentially became critical of the myth, right? It's a lot like the Christopher Columbus stuff yeah, that we nice, talked about nice earlier person, earlier yeah. this season. Yeah, we find out all the stuff about Christopher Columbus from new primary sources that cast a lot of <laughs> shade on his character and people react strongly, super strongly, right, yeah. in defense. And we have to... In, recontextualize our understanding of these people right president mckay was one of the people at first who soundly rejected fawn brody and importantly her name the m in her name is mckay mm -hmm. she was the daughter she was her, his niece yes his and um, daughter. I think it was Thomas, wasn't it, Thomas? There was, yeah. What happened was a transformation occurred throughout the latter part of his life that he completely turned around on her and came to love her. Right? Mm -hmm. His attitude was her when she came to a family reunion. He said nothing to her about this book, but put his arms around her and kissed her and hugged her and said, Fawn. You are one of my favorite nieces, right? Tolerance is a love start. the person. Love, love is the real answer to the question, though. Yeah, this transformation—the book that we're reading, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism—it doesn't say how President McKay had this transformation. I don't know how he changed from a person who was quite upset with Fawn Brody and didn't want to associate with her. And this is like the only person in his journals that he writes in this manner about. <laughs> <laughs> to a person that, lo that loved her. How did he go through this transformation? I have a theory. How did he change? Go ahead. My theory is he always loved her. And there was mm -hmm. a period of time where he could not tolerate her presence and thought that what she did was horrible. Um, but I suspect he never stopped loving her. 
and that allowed for tolerance to return. And so maybe, maybe I was wrong earlier when I said it starts with tolerance and we're working towards love. Maybe we have to have love first. And, um, and then tolerance is just one of the many good side effects of love. I still think tolerance is sort of a low form, like really accepting people for who they are is better than simply tolerating them. But I think all these things are born of love. And that is, that is our goal as Christians is to be motivated by love and to live through love and to have love as our goal and our, and our direction and our ultimate aim. I wish I had a, a, a clear cut way to navigate division, strife, and controversy in our church, in our politics, in our families, and in our lives, right? And I don't. It is possible to become too tolerant, I think. And the book, again, emphasizes these five examples where President McKay did act to stop certain things from happening in the church and did it kind of behind the scenes in subtle ways to try to be as tolerant as possible. Whether he went far enough, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting debate. How far should we go? I think you would ask a, a lot of people that we just shouldn't be tolerant at all when it comes to you know, open rebellion and sedition <laughs> on the Capitol. I think it's okay to say I'm not tolerant of that. <laughs> but none of the people I know, it's just, so, that's just so far outside the conversation that I don't even know how to approach it. Well, when I, I mean, watching those videos and how many of them like were live streaming themselves at the time or got hopped on YouTube later or Facebook and recorded themselves talking about the crimes they'd committed. Like one thing I've learned and, and part of this is being a parent, part of it's teaching high school, part of it is just dealing with human beings all the time is that we're all kind of dumb, right? Like we make really dumb mistakes all the time. And some mistakes are much more egregious than others. Um, but we should be able to recognize the human stupidity in each other because we should be able to recognize it in ourselves. And that, that empathy for our shared idiocy ought to be a place where, where we can build some sort of um, care and tolerance. And it doesn't mean we tolerate actions or behaviors or lies or untruths or um, deceptions or any of those sorts of things, but if we can still recognize the humanity in people, I think that's so important, right? You can't have um, the, the, the most horrible crimes ever committed by humans against others, um, you know, genocide, that sort of thing, happen when people absolutely fail to recognize the humanity in each other. And as long as we can still recognize the humanity in people who do terrible things, um, whether it's because they're stupid, like I would argue probably most of the capital stormers or because they're misguided or um, just lost, like holding out some sort of love for those people, even if we can't tolerate their actions. I mean, that's what we have to do, right? We have to still recognize the humanity in others, even when they appear to us to be monsters. Practically speaking, I have a hard time when I see something go by on my own local social media, right? I have my own local social media, stuff that people on the internet would never see, right? Private chats with family or with friends, right? And sometimes things go by on there that I just strenuously disagree with about, about the virus and about politics and I've had to remove myself from some of those conversations, right? I just don't know how to converse about this stuff online. And so I oftentimes default to not doing so, right? Just because I love, pe I love people that are in my life so much that I would rather just not have the conversation, right? 
and this is this is this is tolerant, right? Mm-hmm. But it also means that, in some cases, assuming that I assuming that I'm not wrong, that they are, <laughs> and they persist in it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not saying anything. This is a tough one. I've so, been thinking about this a lot lately because uh, I have some people in my life um, who um, believe that the appropriate thing to do is to overthrow the government. You know, um, such such things, which I find appalling and I they know that I think that they are wrong and a little bit crazy so is that enough for me to just let them say their thing um since they know that I disagree with them like how much do I need to stand up like how much is the is the relationship more important than you know laying out a string of facts isn't necessarily going to solve any problems um yeah and this, of course, is a very different question. So going back to Biden, where we started, like uh, as president, he has certain responsibilities and the Justice Department will have certain responsibilities. And those responsibilities are distinct from the responsibilities you have to Cousin Joe or whoever it is, right? Um, these are very different realms in which we move and um, different kinds of responsibilities. And it's one of the differences between us and President McKay is that we, all of these stories, even ones that affected the whole church, he, it appears kind of the way they're, they're shown in the story that he treated them as issues between individuals. Um, but sometimes issues are bigger than that. This is something I've had to learn as a high school teacher is like, um, if kids say like um, racial or, or uh, homophobic slurs, something like that in the classroom, just like the kids knowing I disapprove and um, just moving on is not always the right thing to do, right? Sometimes for the, for the sake of the class, um, things need to be stopped and serious conversations need to be had about why um, words can cause damage to people. Um, and there's never a right way to do that. I, I was really hoping you would yeah, say something different. I just don't know that there is like we can, we can because at some, fail. At some point I have to say something. Yeah. But, and, and it probably won't work, but over time um, at least we're doing the best we can. Research shows mm-hmm. that people who believe in um, conspiracy theories, they don't change their mind because of facts. They change their mind because they know and respect someone who doesn't agree with that and never gives up on them. And that person may never say something that is the moment that changes their mind, but just by being in contact with them, um, that's how you change people's mind, just by being a real person. Because when everybody who disagrees with them is a nameless entity, uh, a faceless horde, people don't change. Sounds really hard. It's, it's the work of a lifetime and we will not succeed. But it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So, Eric, next time, let's go ahead and do chapter uh, five. Five is broadcasting. Uh, let's see. No, six. Six. Radio and television broadcasting. Broadcasting it is.